1: It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Hosting this episode along with me is our chairman and chief investment officer. I like to call him dad. Bill, thanks for joining me. Cool. It's great to be here. We're glad you've joined us for this episode. We are going to discuss the life and the lessons of a person that we look at as one of the faces of the New York Stock Exchange and American markets in general. Bob Pisani is joining us to talk about his book, Shut Up and Keep Talking. Bob is the senior markets correspondent for CNBC. He has been with CNBC since 1990 when he joined as a real estate correspondent. Unless you were hiding in a hole, Bob has covered the markets from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, where he's become part of the fabric of that institution. Before we get going with Bob, Bill, is there anything that you're looking forward to in our discussion? I'm sure I could guess, but I'd love to know.
0: Well, I love Bob's book, and it's a great walk through memory lane and also quite educational. Yeah. I feel like this should be a professorial lesson with Bob. Bob, it's great to
1: have you join us today. I want to also thank you for joining us. Your colleague, Kelly Evans, got us connected up. And so just to start off, we'd love to know what inspired you to write this book.
2: Well, I have been with CNBC for 33 years, and that's a very long career. I'm still here. Uh, 26 (laughs) of that has been uh, on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. So it is very unusual to stay with one company for 33 years and very unusual to stay in one position. I've been the the markets correspondent uh, since 1997, uh, and I made a conscious decision to stay put. Um, This is uh, hard for a lot of people to figure out what what to do with their career. But by 2000, um, I made a decision to stay at the New York Stock Exchange and stay with CNBC. And the reason I did was I love the job. I love being on the floor. I love meeting people. It's an extraordinary thing working on the floor. I always say. What would you give to meet all of your heroes, every rock star, every you know uh, mm-hmm. king and queen that you ever wanted to meet? That opening and closing bell at the New York Stock Exchange has been about ten thousand of them since I got here in early 1997, <laughs> and that's an awful lot of you know kings and queens and celebrities and CEOs to meet in that in that time frame. So it's not that complicated. I, I really love the job, and what happens when you stay in one place a long time is you acquire a lot of wisdom and information about it. You're inch wide, mile deep. You know an awful lot about a small subject. In my case, it's the stock market. So mm-hmm. it came time for me to try to figure out what do I think I know uh, and, and how do I know it and where did I acquire this information and to sort of share it because I have some very strong beliefs about what I think works and doesn't work in the stock market and a few observations about some famous celebrities and you know some wisdom in, about life in general I've seen sitting on the floor here watching all these people trade stocks. So that was sort of the origin uh, of this. Um, people asked me about the title, uh, Shut Up and Keep Talking. Uh, and the publisher asked me about when he bought the book, said, we we want the book, but we don't have a title. What do you want for a title? I said, well, I want something like Lessons on Life and Investing from the Floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And he said, well, <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice title, but that's a subtitle, that's not a title. We need a title. And he said, so tell me, when you're waiting to go on the air every day, how do they communicate with you and what do they say? I said, well, the producers communicate with me through a, an earpiece I have called an IFB that you plug in uh, into your ear uh, with the remote. And they usually can say anything like, hi, how you doing, Bob? Or, but usually they'll say some variation on the phrase rap, which means shut up in TV lingo or stretch the word stretch, which means keep talking in TV lingo. So basically, you hear some variation on shut up and keep talking. And he said, that's the title of the book, Shut <laughs> Up and Keep Talking.
0: Bob, Bob, you refer to yourself as the last of the Mohicans when it comes to your work at CNBC. It was new and and exciting in the 1990s. Do you think the business of covering stocks will ever fade?
2: No, and I'll tell you why, because nothing, there's very few investments that could ever match the long-term returns of the New York uh, of of stocks in general. Sure. Um, there's a lot of studies done on owning stocks versus bonds versus real estate, uh, commodities is an arguable asset class. Uh, and generally, well, the stock market does not outperform every year. It generally over long periods of time. And I mean, decades outperforms everything else. So, um, Because of that and because of the nature of the capitalist system, and by that I mean in the United States, as capitalism is practiced, it's basically uh, individual ownership of the means of production. So it's sort of private capitalism, and that's the most efficient allocator of capital, individuals and corporations making their own decisions in their own best interests. There's other kinds of capitalism, state capitalism, as it's practiced in parts of Europe, where a lot of the means of production is, is it's still capitalism, but the state owns a little bit more. And sure. there's spectrums of that all the way to, to China, where the state owns you know very large parts of the means of production. So I, I think that because of the nature of uh, people's need to uh, earn money on their money, uh, the stock market is in danger of, of going away anytime soon. What's changed is the way trading is done. When I got here on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, there were 4,000 people on the floor, and they traded 80% of the volume in all NYSE stocks on the floor. Today, there's about 250 people on the floor, and they trade 15 to 20% of the volume. Think about that. 4,000 people to 250, 80% of the volume to 15 to 20%. That's technological disruption, but it sure. still hasn't changed the fact about the long-term returns of stocks.
0: That's a great lead-in to talking about the. You talked about the analyst community of Wall Street and the fallout of the research community after the early two thousands. Uh, you comment how their buy recommendation bias hasn't seemed to change with the times, but coverage is narrower. Uh, we have this particular view of this, but want to understand from your seat at the floor what you see their role
2: and leadership being. Well, I was very close to the analyst community, and I'm talking about the the b- bottoms. Analyst community—the analysts who cover individual companies, not uh, the strategists that are top down. I'm close to them too, but uh, 20 years ago, I spent an awful lot of time talking to them. Uh, And we had we had Spitzer come in in 2003, as I recall, with what we called the global settlement. Spitzer basically turned around when he was turning was with New York State and sued the analyst community on the grounds that there was a conflict of interest, and indeed Mm -hmm. there there was. Uh, the, the analysts were being used by uh, the IPO people to essentially uh, push and, Spitzer implied, pump up stocks uh, for uh, IPOs. And he was the one who had a settlement with them where it basically created the problem of how do you pay analysts Uh, and all sorts of unsatisfactory answers came up in the next 20 years, including what we call soft dollars, where they basically said, "Okay, if you trade enough with us at Merrill Lynch, we'll give you the research. And it was sort of very fuzzy. And now the rules are, are getting harder, particularly in Europe, where you can't do that. So the question becomes, who pays the analysts and how do they get paid? But the effect of all of this was that many of the smartest analysts just left. The pay dropped dramatically. The Mm -hmm. sell-side analyst community fell apart. Uh, Many went to hedge funds. Many tried to open their own shops with varying degrees of success. The effect of all of this, just to get to the bottom line, is that the quality of sell-side research, in my opinion, has declined precipitously. Um, Because there is just limited intellectual firepower, a lot of the analysts tend to simply mimic what the CEOs are saying. There's much less creative thinking than it was 20 years ago. And that's very disturbing to me because I need we Wall Street and investors need people to talk about stocks. We need particularly people to talk about small cap and mid cap stocks that can sometimes just die of neglect, literally die of neglect. Sure. So there's a value in the Wall Street analyst community. Um, it's just very difficult to figure out how, what's what's the value proposition and how can they, they get paid.
1: Well, Bob, we own U-Haul or known as AmeriCo on the stock exchange and nobody covers it. So we, we understand that loud and clear. Um, you point out how you're trying to connect to the events of the day. And you also uh, speak about how complex this stock market system that we deal in is. Um, how often do you finish a day and feel more confused than when you started it?
2: <laughs> oh. Yesterday was a good example. <laughs> we had a trading glitch on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and you're having Amen. You know, yep. a normal, you know, morning, and then all of a sudden, stocks open, you know, and Wells Fargo's down 16, percent and you think, what? The, what is that? <laughs> it's a and flash th- crash. And, and all of a sudden, you go on the floor, and everybody's in chaos. So, uh, yesterday was not a great day for you know calming, meditative influences, but. But look, think about what your purpose is as a journalist. Um, journalists are involved in creating narratives about things. Because as humans, and this is I discuss this a lot in the book, The Power of Narratives, we go, mm-hmm. we, that's how we understand the world. That's how we literally understand our lives. What, what is our lives? It's just a collection of stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And life is lived that way. So what I say journalism is... When you come in the morning and think of like a hundred stick of notes on the wall and they're all blank and you start filling in each one with some fact. And the job of journalism is to connect all of these facts and show how somehow they're related and create a narrative out of it. That's literally the way I view it, my job. So I come in, there's hundreds of pieces. of There's earnings reports and there's economic reports and there's stuff going on in, in in Ukraine. And there's literally hundreds and hundreds of different data points. And your question is, how do you make any sense out of this uh, and make a narrative out of it? And by the way, be a little creative and say something that maybe nobody else is saying. That's how you sort of distinguish yourself. It's how you assemble those facts and and make something useful out of it that really determines whether you're any good as a journalist uh, at all. So most of the days are not like yesterday. Most of them are, you know, consists of you sitting around at the end of the day, typing up, you know, a few paragraphs about what exactly happened and going on the air and explaining that.
1: You talk about the squawk on the street team with David Faber, Jim Cramer, and Carl Keatonia. Nia. Um, we agree with you, by the way. Carl is the Rock of Gibraltar. Um, once with Bill uh, and and once on my own, we, we ran into Carl out in Maui, which it's really fun to, to visit with folks like yourself that normally we're talking about those narratives, to your point, um, and visit personally. But I actually was just in New York last week and I, I saw... Carl across the restaurant up at Del Frisco's near the NBC headquarters there at Rockefeller Center. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm, I'm born and raised on the West Coast. Um, I was born and raised in Seattle. I live in Phoenix now. Can you explain to a West Coast audience, Bob, what it's like to be in a city like New York, in New York, where you could run into those kings and queens and those celebrities and be within shouting distance of them and yet have no access to them whatsoever, as you so well point out in your book?
2: Well, it's uh, one of the great things about being in New York, and I was born in New York. I I grew up outside of Philadelphia, but I was born in the Bronx. uh, So this is all, I work at the Stock Exchange, all very familiar territory, and I I live in restaurants. Uh, You know, that's one of the the fun things. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a sort of rule of thumb about this, uh, about bothering people in restaurants. And generally, um, the rule is, unless you know them, your friends, you generally don't bother them. Uh, You don't particularly, this was particularly true, for example, in Los Angeles with um, movie stars, celebrity types. Um, You generally don't bother them. It's considered poor form unless you know them, then you go over and say hello. Uh, There are people who violate this all the time and there are frankly people who come up to me and say hello, hi, watch on CNBC and I'm happy to say hello uh, to people um, most of the time uh, and and chat with them, Uh, but it's one of the great fun things about New York and New York is reopening. It has been reopening all last year. So when I came, um, there was a, a period where uh, there was a, a, a COVID outbreak in December of 2021 uh, mm-hmm. in New York. And um, a lot of people stayed home from the NYC. and I came back in late January. It was deserted downtown. I mean, sure. places I go, my bagel shop, there was nobody there. But by November of this year, you know, there were lines out front of the bagel shop again so i I don't know what the occupancy i think the national occupancy rate for offices is close to 50 percent i can assure you there that corporate america um, is asking more people to go back more often i think you're going to see that more i don't know if we're going to go back i i think we will not go back to five days um certainly not for a while but they're certainly demanding three days now and some more aggressive ones are asking even for more to go back. So yeah. it'll be very interesting to see how, how that evolves this year.
0: Bob, you talked about the analysts and and then you, you kind of made fun of fundamental investors. And we, we go by what Buffett and Munger say about the key to success in life is weak competition. Uh, Uh, you've been adorned with praise from the technical investment community. You talk about the fundamental investors want nothing to do with the technical crowd. But can you explain what you often hear from the fundamental investors at the end
2: of their stock pitch? Well, I'm not sure I make fun of fundamental investors. I'll I'll tell you there. The question is very simple. Um, How do you figure out uh, the future? And it's a major problem. I actually devote several chapters in the book to this. And it's 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 been an obsession of mine for for many, many years. Um, so the, the purpose of fundamental net, what do you get when you buy a stock? Um, when you buy a stock, you get one of s- several things. you're you're supposed to be getting a dividend. You're supposed to be getting some future stream of earnings. and the mm-hmm. question is how much is it, and has it growing or getting smaller? And then finally, there's a question of how much you're willing to spend for that future stream of earnings and that's the p e ratio the the multiple um you know if you've got a ten dollar stock and it's making a dollar uh in earnings uh that you know that multiple is ten is that worth it are you willing to spend uh that ten dollars for that one dollar so the the, what the first thing that you'll notice if you do this for more than a couple years is that everyone is terrible at predicting the future um fundamental analysts who are supposed to even like a caterpillar analyst trying to figure out what the stock's going to be a year from now faces all sorts of problems. And there's there's two major problems I discuss in the books. Why fundamental analysis has a problem, and I can mention technical analysis in a minute, but the first problem is that these predictions, they're riddled with biases and noise that limit the the quality of, of the predictions. So there's all sorts of uh, there are emotional biases, for example, where people feel Wrong. So, you know, there's overconfidence. So, some people believe they're infallible when they hit a winning streak. There's there's herd behavior. You know, people blindly follow what others are doing. Um, there's an endowment effect where people value the stuff they already own. Uh, and and then there's other errors that analysts and everybody makes. Cognitive errors, just errors of thinking. So people. Uh, there's a confirmation bias. you know people select information that just supports their point of view, and they don't want to hear anything else about anybody else's point of view. Uh, and then people jump to conclusions based on unlimited information. So there's a problem with biases, number one, and then number two, there is a, just a lack of information about events because they're unpredictable. Think about sure. trying to predict the stock price one year from now. You, you could have all sorts of things going on. The, on the macro level, the economy could have shocks or surprise. You could have inflation, interest rates. The CEO could fall ill and retire. And you're not even considering black swan events like COVID. So when you actually put all this together, it turns out that predicting the future is really, really difficult to do. Exactly, And that's yep. my point. Here I got a lot more humble as I got older and less cocky about this. And instead of saying, you know, all these people are idiots, what I saw was they're not idiots. Most of them are extremely intelligent and well-meaning, but it's very difficult to figure out what's going on. And when you're picking stocks, because access to information is so evenly spread out, it's very difficult to get access to any information that people don't have already. So I got a lot humbler on that. On technical analysis, the truth is I've had... I love hate relationship with technical analysis for 20 years. The truth is that if you look at the academic research, a lot of it simply concludes uh, that it doesn't add any real uh, value in terms of the ability to predict things. Sure. Uh, However, what you find is when people get, there is an active trading community out there that wants to try to beat the market, they don't care that most people can't beat the market. and They know this, but they think they can. And so they use fundamental and technical analysis. And the the problem uh, here is, uh, aside from the fact that um, a lot of the, the evidence doesn't really support the ability to for people to make a lot of money doing this on a regular basis, the, the problem is whether or not you get enough people to Buy into the concept of technical analysis. It, it's like if you get enough people believing that if the S and P violates its 200-day moving average, that that's a sign, and and that people should lighten up on their positions. If enough people do that, well, it will work. So it's sort of like a um, you know important belief system in in a lot of ways. Sure. And uh- um, I like uh, what I. I'll make my final point on technical analysis. Um, when people do not understand the macro environment and get confused like we are now, like are we in a recession or not? People who are active traders turn more to technical analysis. So it actually becomes more important, not less important. So to
1: preface the next question, I'm going to ask you to to share with our listeners. um, I'm holding here a picture on my phone from a friend of mine whose grandfather was a specialist on the the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, H. Guyon Benedict, who was admitted to the Stock Exchange as a specialist on February 28th 1929 and this is a charter member of the buttonwood club from 1962 is where the plaque is from Um, could you could you teach our listeners uh, uh, just a little bit about the founding of the new york stock exchange
2: the new york stock exchange was founded in 1792 by a a small group of brokers down the street um, uh, and it was called the buttonwood agreement Uh, Mm -hmm. and the reason because it's the buttonwood agreement is uh, button trees, tree is I recall is a cedar tree, and it was there was a buttwood tree down the road, and the reason it's called buttonwood is um, the wood is very hard, and it was used to make buttons, that's why it's called a buttonwood tree. So it was supposedly founded under the Buttonwood tree in 1792, uh, uh, the corner broad, uh, uh, of Broad uh, of Wall Street uh, and uh, Williams Street, uh, which is right down the street from where I'm at. I'm at the New York Stock Exchange, sure. so. Uh, it was founded then, and the number of stocks available was very small. I mean, there was there was the the Water Company, the Manhattan Company that existed, but there was mostly war uh, bonds that were around from the war that was traded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the NYSE uh, built a, a building. Uh, it, the real explosion happened in the 1860s when the NYSE went to continuous trading. Prior to that. Uh, trading was conducted by individual auctions on individual stocks. There literally was, okay, today we're trading Union Pacific at this hour for the next five minutes, and who will give me a bid on Union Pacific? And then they moved on to uh, AT&T, which wasn't there at the time, but railroads. And in the 1860s, they moved to continuous trading where they were trading all stocks at all times. That's when the specialist system uh, developed. So one thing that's very important about the the, the the NYC is that it's been at the forefront of technology since the very beginnings. It it had one of the first, the telegraph service was extensive. Uh, they were widely used telegraph services down here, even in the 1830s and 1840s to get information faster. That was a leg up. They were one of the first places on earth to have telephones installed in the 1870s. There were floor telephone floors, um, telephones on the floor. They had pneumatic Uh, um, uh, They had pneumatic uh, trading systems where they literally pneumatic tubes that sent things at high speed to brokerage offices down the street so they could get information on the trade immediately. So they were at the forefront of technology for a a long time, and uh, it's, it's interesting to watch. Uh, the NYSE try to adopt new technologies, for example, electronic trading. Bob,
0: we 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 love that part of your book. That was just fantastic. I started in the business as a retail broker at Drexel Burnham in 1980 and trained at 55 Broad Street for a couple of months. Uh, explain the structure of a trade at the NYSE 30 years ago versus today.
2: Well, like I said, 30 years ago, most of the trading And the execution was done on the floor. Um, The majority in the early 1990s was still what we call open outcry, where you had a broker directly communicating with a specialist who made a market in the stock. So if you had 100,000 shares of General Electric to buy, you went over to the specialist. And you may or may not have said, I have 100,000 shares Uh, I need to buy. Or if you didn't want to announce that to a crowd, you might have said, uh, you know, I'll make me an offer for, you know, 10,000 shares. And you would work the order throughout the day. But it was an individual working uh, the order. Even by the early 1990s, there were some forms of electronic execution where you could execute, uh, where the the specialist could execute an order from uh, upstairs without a floor broker, depending on the size of the order. So there was a, Uh, a a thing called the the Designated Order Turnaround System, the DOT system, that enabled some electronic trading. And what really happened is um, NASDAQ was a leader in this. uh, Initially, when NASDAQ was started in the 1970s, it wasn't a trading system. It was just a system that showed you prices on the screen. To trade, you still had to make phone calls. Uh, They didn't allow really electronic trading until the late 1980s. There were a couple of uh, other... Um, non-exchange programs that were out there, like Instinet, that allowed matching of ele- electronic orders, and that was really the start. Uh, Instinet was one of the very first programs out there. But slowly but surely, what happened was you you had a collision between the old open outcry system and the ability to trade uh, electronically. And what the systems evolved so that the hardware, the software, by the mid and early 1990s were sufficient so that you could match orders to buy and sell in sub-second intervals. That became an enormous threat to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, because suddenly there were were protection rules that did not allow stocks to be traded off of the floor. So the NYSE was somewhat protected, but those rules ended in 1999, and then the floodgates opened. Now you had a floor where the NYSE might take 14 seconds for delivery, Electronic would take subsecond, and that's what sure. caused a lot of the problems.
0: Bob, one of one of my absolute favorite things in the book, to talk a little bit about the the way the sound would change on the floor in those original years, based on if there was a buying mood or based on if there was a selling mood.
2: Well, the the Art cast used to used to say, you know that. You could uh, you could sort of hear his warning system was the, the rustle of the floor. Uh, <laughs> and um, you know, people's voices would go up. and he used to talk about the teletype machines were coming in. You could hear the sounds just all of a sudden, uh, more clattering um, going on. So yeah, there were audio and visual cues uh, from the floor. Uh, it's hard to describe, you, you know, it's if you come on the floor now, there's only a few hundred people there, and it's a, so much quieter than it was in 1997. It is it's truly deafening on the floor. You literally had to shout. And this was a very, uh, it was like a fraternity. It was a very closed environment of, of people who consider themselves very privileged to work. And On the floor, there was a a luncheon club upstairs where they brought in clients. And it was a a big, big operation, gigantic restaurant um, where the members uh, hung out. And that's where a lot of business got done there and at the bar afterwards. So,
1: so Bob, let's go to Art Cashin because he's a central character in your book. as a personal friend of yours. Uh, For watchers of your segments like, like myself, I see Art as the face of the good old NYSE. You explain Art by saying, quote, often in an attempt to explain why people should think deeper about what they are doing, he told stories that illustrated a favorite theme, why the obvious answer is not always the correct answer, end quote. Can you briefly tell our listeners what Art learned from Professor Jack in the 60s?
2: Well, that's a complicated subject. Um, (laughs) Professor Jack was a a futures trader, and Art Cashin did not go to college. Like so many people um, at the NYSE, uh, they came out of high school. And um, his, you know, he always said his university was the floor and the bars around the NYSE. Um, And there's a, he tells a story once when he was out with Professor Jack during the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is 1962. Mm -hmm. And it looked like the missiles were flying, like the nuclear missiles. And Art went out and tried to buy puts. You know, to protect against the market, you profit if the market dropped. And he couldn't buy them. And he goes to the bar and Professor Jack is there, his mentor, and he's he says, Hey Professor, I, I tried to buy puts and I couldn't. The professor says, Hey kid, sit down and buy me a drink. And Art sits down, and Professor Jack says, Now listen carefully to me. When you hear the missiles are flying, you don't buy them. You you buy them. You don't sell them. And Art looked at him and said, what do you mean? You buy them, you don't sell them. And Professor Jack said, well, because you buy them, because if you're wrong, the trade will never clear. We'll all be be dead. And if you're wrong, (laughs) it's not not gonna matter, right? That's awesome. (laughs) So the book is full of a number of stories that Art has. He was never one for academic theories. There's a great story. You know, I'll I'll leave it to people get the book about. Where yeah. he, he talks about JP Morgan. Uh, and, that was a and, great
1: story. The, the stitch pin was fantastic. Yeah, that was yeah, great. Yeah,
2: yeah. Was Tiffany's great. attempt to sell him a stick pin. Yeah. Uh, I'll leave it to people <laughs> depending on the book, but it's about yeah. wh- how to determine what the right price is for <laughs> something. Yeah.
0: I'll, I'll never forget, Bob, analyzing Toys or Us against the internet darling eToys back in 99, 2000. For younger listeners, can you teach them what your view of the dot com bust? was that you so eloquently explain your book and the
2: excesses you saw with it? Well, the dot-com bus is a good example of, uh, uh, of bubbles uh, and what happens in a, in a bubble. Um, um, and, you know, today, what's a bubble? It's a rapid rise in prices over a short period that isn't really justified by fundamentals. And that's what happened there. So you talk about Toys R Us, pets.com. Here's a company that went public and advertised free shipping for dog food. Well, you know, <laughs> dog food's ten-pound bags. It turns out that it costs more to ship than the profit they would actually make. Nobody seemed to have thought of this, and most of these companies made no money. And finally, when there was a downturn, a slight downturn in the economy, um, these companies were revealed to have no real profit potential at all. So, what happens in in bubbles? Well, you need some easy money, fairly low interest rates. You need a new disruptive technology, and we had that, by the way. We had the internet; that was the big thing of its day. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and you, you need some, maybe other financial innovations like new mortgage products that had led to the housing bubble. Uh, and you need some supply-demand imbalance. You need all of a sudden the demand exceeds supply, which happened with these internet stocks. People were crazy for things like Pets.com. And then you need some medium to propagate all this information. You need a newspaper or you need the internet or you need television. This is one of the reasons CNBC became so big because sure. people wanted to learn more about the internet. And there they were. There we were on the air talking about it. Bob,
0: isn't innovation this time similar to that?
2: All innovation. Yeah. Any kind of innovation. So here's a, is Bitcoin a bubble? Well, yeah, arguably it has similar characteristics to this. Um, to to what all of these bubbles that we, we see in the past we there was easy money we had a disruptive technology which which happened to be called blockchain Bitcoin is just a, a cryptocurrency that runs off the blockchain um, and this is a new financial innovation um, there was a s- supply demand imbalance out there and of course we had a medium to propagate all of this so yes I would say the that they're very similar characteristics. So I'm a big backer of financial innovation. This sounds like I'm being dismissive, and I'm not. I, I believed in, in backing the internet. I believe in backing blockchain. Um, I, I believe when electronic trading came in and disrupted the NYSE floor, uh, I, it made me sad, but I wasn't nostalgic about it. Uh, I, I, you have to keep supporting innovation. And it's t- sometimes innovation can lead to excesses and bubbles, like we saw with the dot-com bust, like we saw with what's happening with 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 uh, crypto. Uh, sure. But that doesn't shouldn't make people negative. You just got to be careful um, and, you know, look look to the future. Be smart about it.
1: Yeah, you touch on this theme in the book um, as you talk about cash-in and others of kind of not agreeing with other people, being independent-minded. Um, and you touch on this idea of contrarianism throughout the book. You wrote about the trader, uh, John uh, uh you wrote, quote, he warned against falling herds and how the bigger money was always made, playing against the expectations of the majority, end quote. You, you later wrote uh, about him, quote, volatility was a trader's dream. Big price movements presented great opportunities, end quote. I mean, we're low turnover stock pickers, but agree with everything Mulheron said and you wrote about in your book. Um, we think about this a lot right now as we you know, own a ton of oil and no big cap tech, so, you know, kind of being on the other side, would you agree that these truths apply not only to um, traders, like a lot of the folks you talked about, aren't these also true for investors at large?
2: Yes. Um, There's a chapter in this book, uh, and you're referring to, it's called The Wizards of Oz, and there was a time in the late 90s where I had this stupid idea that I was going to find the perfect trader the mm-hmm. guy or woman who knew everything. Like, yep. why am I going out with 200 people? Literally, I was going out with 200 people <laughs> looking for the perfect, when if I could find like four or five guys who knew everything, then I could just call them and I'd sound like a genius. And, and so I spent years doing this. And along the way, I finally realized this is stupid because there is no Wizard of Oz. But sure. what I discovered was some of the best traders Kept repeating the same stuff over and over and over again. And mm-hmm. in that chapter, and I'll, I'll leave, I'll, I'll just make it very abbreviated. What the most important thing I learned from these best traders was to really limit losses. You know, I, I spent some time with Ace Greenberg, at Bear Stearns, he's one of the best traders ever. And he used to say, when the going gets tough, the tough starts selling. Um, people don't know how to limit their losses. And Buzzy sure. Goduld, who ran a big market-making operation, Herzog-Hein Gadould, used to say, praying is for Saturday and Sunday, not Monday through Friday. Don't hope your position <laughs> is going to improve. So be careful there. Don't fall in love with stocks. Never average down. Um, and, and, and there's more in the book about that. But The Wizard of Oz is one of my favorite chapters because I had to sort of reveal how... My stupid quests that I went on decades.
0: (laughs) You, you You struck another chord of ours when you explained the life of Joe Zickerman. Quote, but for a small minority, including Joe, it's much more than just the money. It's what you are. It's part of the very fiber of your being. It's what you live and breathe and think about even when you're not doing it, unquote. Uh, we might critique the last part and say, especially when you're not doing it. For the people that love the competition that goes on in markets, wouldn't many of them do it even if it was just for bragging rights? They love the game. It, it's the competitiveness they love, isn't it?
2: Yeah. There are people out there that I call true traders. Um, you know, there are people who like think, you know, well, I like to do this because I'm really here to get rich quick and make money. But this group of people that I found, and this is, you know, these people in the Wizard of Oz chapter. They, that's what they do. They just live and breathe. They have some ability to sort of look very quickly uh, at the markets and sort of figure things out. Now, Joe Zickerman was a, a, a famous, um, he, he ran money for uh, Morgan Stanley, he had a very mm-hmm. famous client book. And I talk about some of his clients, uh, Barbara Streisand, he, he was sort of a broker to the stars in the 1980s. Uh, and Joe Zickerman uh, is still around, still a good friend of mine, still trading. But Um, freely admits he's ADHD, he literally has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, where it's very difficult for him to concentrate for long periods on anything. He doesn't read books at all. But uh, I found this was a similar trait with a lot of really high-end traders. They're really good at concentrating for intense short periods of time uh, and can make decisions very, very fast. I'm not saying all traders are ADHD, but he freely admitted that a personality trait that some people perceived to be negative was, in his, in his particular circumstances, a positive for him. So um, it's very interesting to, to, to see people who, like, th- this is really what they do and what they sure. like. So,
1: so, Bob, let's pivot. You're a big fan of Jack Bogle. Uh, I'm going to quickly uh, quote uh, William Sharp here. Um, William Sharp in 2002 said, "There Thus, there is a fragile equilibrium in which some investors choose to index some or all of their money, while the rest continue to search for mispriced securities. Back in 2002, when he said that, obviously, passive was not as large. With 60% of passive in the market structure today for many large cap stocks, do you see a structural problem as someone that sits on markets watching that? I just say it because like a 60% buyer in a bull market versus a much smaller selling group is good for that passive structure. Do you see any problems when the 60% passive owner might become a net seller? Because as you point out, you know, humans, like the old saying is dogs chase cars, humans chase stocks, and they'll chase an index, too, we found out.
2: Yeah, I don't have a problem with this. I Look, there's been oh, there's been some academic discussions about when would the market, it, w- w- at what percent of passive ownership would the market really become uh, inefficient? Um, sure. I, I, the, I Let's put it this way: I am not concerned about this. This is one of those issues. It seems to me uh, that the active trading community has complaints about. They used to say, "Oh, you know, uh, this is stupid. You should be trying to beat the market, uh, uh, not go with the market." They kind of lost that argument, uh, and then they would say, uh, when the ETF business came up and the indexing business, they say, "Well, wait." wait till these markets get thin, these ETFs are gonna fall apart because they're not gonna be able to trade the underlying securities. That turned out to be a lot of nonsense. That didn't happen either. Uh, so now we have the argument. Oh, there's too many passive investors, and if this happens, then the market's not going to be efficient. Well, gee, looks like the market's pretty efficient to me. We got—it's amazing how much trading goes on considering this passive investing. Just look at the volume, and not sure. just the dollar volume, but look at the, the share volume. It—I don't see I- any uh, issue uh, with, with that. Uh, uh, right now. So I I guess uh, I'm not trying to be dismissive of your claim. I'm just saying, of the things that I worry about, that isn't one of
0: them. Uh, Bob, you comment on Buffett a couple of times in the book from events during your career. One point, one was his interview on 60 Minutes where he would not sell any of his holdings when the market reopened after 9-11. And we'll never forget him writing, Buy America and I Am in the New York Times in in the fall of 08. We look at him as the voice of long-term common stock ownership. Do you see him the same way, and or what role will be missing when he's gone?
2: Yeah, well, I do, and I have nothing but respect for him. Uh, Look, you can debate all you want about value over growth, and he's a value investor, Um, but I can think of no finer book for anyone to start with um, than The Essays of Warren Buffett, which sits on my shelf. Um, When I had to write this book about what I'd learned, I sat down and think, well, what do I know? And how do I know this? And who taught this to me? And it ended up, I ended up with five or six books that actually mattered. They're still on my shelf and I use them all the time. And I finally realized this is what, these are the people that mattered most. And the books were Jack Bogle's Common Sense on Mutual Funds, mm-hmm. number one. Uh, number two, Burton Malkiel's A Random Walk Down Wall Street. Sure. Uh, number three was Charlie Ellis's Winning uh, the Losers Game. Uh, number four was Jeremy Siegel, Stocks for the Long Run, which just came out in a new edition. Yeah. And number five was the essays of Warren Buffett. So if you ask me, you know, uh, the stuff I talk about on the air about earnings trends and P/E ratios, all of it, all of it comes from those books. I just keep recycling <laughs> the information uh, on the on the <laughs> fundamentals of, in, of investing. When I say, when what do you get when you buy a stock? You're getting a dividend. You're getting uh, expectations of a future stream of earnings, how much is debatable, and you're um, you're making a decision of how much you want to pay for that future stream, and that's the P-E ratio. Those three things, I mean, that goes back to the mid-1990s when I met Jack Bogle and, and, and Jeremy Siegel. Um, and I- I'm essentially still repeating that. And I was so concerned about all of this, these fundamental ways of looking at the market, that when I wrote the book, I went to Jeremy Siegel. I had dinner with him. I went to Burton Malkiel in Princeton, author of Random Walk Down Wall Street, uh, I went to Charlie Ellis, author of uh, Winning the Loser's Game, and I said, "Guys, you have been the biggest influence on me intellectually. We're still good on everything, right?" And they said, yeah. they all said, "We're very good, Bob. Everything's
1: fine." Yeah. So since I work with my dad, I found the story of you, um, you what you told about your dad in the spring of 08, and when he called you up and asked for your advice. Okay, so I'm gonna kind of, I'm gonna kind of uh, poke you a little bit on this because. You point out that you didn't want to give advice to family, like you just tried to avoid it at all costs, pretty much. Okay, Now, um, we have a little bit different take on that, um, because what you reminded me of in that story was that your, your dad asked you two questions. He asked you about, is Bank America going to survive? And the second question is, was on what, what he'd be doing in his bond funds. Um, and what I found interesting is when it came to a question with him that really mattered, you were right. By the way, you were right on two fronts. Because you not only told him about the future, Bank of America survived, but then you also told him advice that he would eat his own cook, you, you eat your own cooking on. You recommended the bond fund that you used. Um, w- would you revisit this and think, maybe I should have been giving advice to my family the whole time because I, I'm going to try to not fail?
2: Well, that's a very good question, a very delicate issue. I'll tell you why, and I, I'd encourage people to look at the book, the chapter on this, because I struggled with this for decades. What kind of advice should I give my family? On the one hand, I am stocks reporter. I do know what the hell I'm talking about, or at least yep. i like to believe that I am. On the other hand, giving advice to family on financial matters is very perilous, because mm-hmm. if you're right, they want more. If you're wrong, they're really annoyed, even if they don't tell you. So what? how much upside <laughs> is there? For me to simply say, you know, I'm basically a Jack Bogle disciple and I'm just, I own the S and P 500, which is what I essentially do. And in the book, I describe my investing journey. I describe what I've owned over the years, what I screwed up on and what I own now. I actually, I do something almost nobody I've ever seen does. I actually list what I currently owned in in a year ago. You
1: you rub your nose in your mistakes like Charlie says.
2: Yeah. I describe. I, I mean, I made some serious errors. Uh, and I said, it's amazing I'm not in, I'm not in the poorhouse as a result of the stupidity. And it was painful to write this, but I thought it was necessary to explain to people because people don't explain their personal investing journeys, and I find yeah. it disturbing. So yeah. th- just to finish this point, th- when you were, my father called me in 2008, this is the height of the financial crisis. He asked, he was retired, he was living in Florida at a country club, and he's I'm sure he was talking to his friends about what the hell was going on. And they all knew who I was. He would parade me around when I go down there. Is my son, the stock expert. And I'd always say, <laughs> ramis sit down and talk to us. Your father doesn't tell us things. Tell us what's going on. And I would tell him what's going on. My father would just sit there beaming. And so he calls me and says, Robert, I need to know, is Bank of America going to survive? I said, why do you need this information? And he said, I just want to know. And now I'm in a perilous situation because it, it, you, it's hard to describe what it was like at the end of 2008. Things were collapsing. And these stocks were going to go, were, were going to a few dollars. And I said, look, Dad, I don't know if you're asking me for investing advice. In my personal opinion, I find Bank of America too big to fail. Mm-hmm. If, it, it's not going to go bust. it's a very worst situation, it'll be bought out by somebody, but they are likely more of an acquirer which did happen, Merrill? Yep, you were right um, about that too. Uh, and then they are going under, but under no circumstances do I think it's going under. He said, okay, thank uh, you. And then he said, so I need some longer term income. What are you on? Which is a terrible, it's the right thing to say. What are you on? Don't tell yeah. me what you think. And I told exactly. him I own Vanguard high yield and I thought it was great, but that's a terrible time. The high, you know, they were doing 10, 12% at that on the high yield. The prices would go through the, through the floor again on this. And I said, Dad, this is a very perilous moment here to do anything. He said, I'm a long term investor.
0: What what do you what do you find interesting in the markets recently? And and you mentioned Siegel. We always look back at how they unwound the nifty fifty. Uh you have anything that, that you find interesting right now?
2: Well I don't give investment advice. One observation I would make is that sure. for the first time in ages Uh, emerging markets are doing better. China is doing better. uh, And Europe is doing better. And so remember, one of my favorite things is what I call the pain trade. The pain trade is what would cause the greatest discomfort to the greatest number of active traders. And the pain trade this year is the market rises because sentiment was so poor going into the end of 2022 that a lot of people were convinced we were going to have some disaster. Well, that so the pain trade would be for the market to rise. Not only did the market rise, but stuff that people had given up on, like Europe, started sure. outperforming. Well, this goes to the old mean reversion concept. But go back to Bogle. Bogle used to laugh at all of this. He said, "You guys think you're going to be able to pick stocks and pick sectors, and you you, you can't because in in active." Uh, it, it, in active trading, you have to be right going in and right going out. And nobody gets that right. And I, I can't emphasize that enough. I know we talk about trading all the time on CNBC because there's a very substantial minority of people that want to actively trade. And you can't stomp your feet and say, no, no, no. You have to accommodate that crowd that wants to do that. But I, 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 I can't emphasize enough. Um, if anyone asked me any kind of fundamental advice, I would say, have a plan and stick to it and stay long generally stay long depending on your age uh, and don't try to trade your way out of a situation increased trading generally increases mistakes generally and uh i i i don't give stock trading advice or specific advice but that's something i feel very strongly about and i discussed the whole history of, of of that and what jack bogle taught me when I met him in the mid-1990s, and I have no reason to change my opinion at all.
1: Bob, there's a lot we didn't talk about. Your SOS Bandits and the discussion of the evolution of high-frequency trading is excellent. Um, Your discussion of Jack Welch when GE was your parent and the deal to become part of Comcast was spectacular. Uh, Rubbing your nose in your face with your Black Sabbath poster story is a great reminder of all of our foolishness. Um, I will say that the next time I'm in New York, I'd love to buy you a drink of your choice after the market close so that you can be my art cash <laughs> um, uh, Is there anything else from this book that we haven't discussed that you think
2: needs to be mentioned? Well, I, you know, people ask me about how I look at the future. There's a chapter at the very end where I, I, I talk about Bob 2.0. The Mm -hmm. only reason I've been able to survive 33 years is that I'm not the same person I was 33 years ago. Uh, It's true that the fundamentals of investing have not changed. And I haven't changed that. But I've changed a lot. I've changed in the way I I look at certain things. um, And Bob 2.0 is a sort of uh, glib way of saying I'm constantly updating my information. I'm constantly – I'm not some old guy. I I actually am old. I'm approaching – 70, uh, but I, you, you have to be able to look ahead to the future, and you have to be able to believe in the future, and you have to be able to um, to essentially reinvent yourself. Uh, and that's kind of a hard thing for people to do as you get older. And I, I think it's probably the most important thing for people, just always be open to innovation and looking at the world. There's a whole chapter in the book where I describe what happened after 9-11, and what happened after dot-com, and the world kind of fell apart. Down here at the NYSE it was terrible. The, the smoke from the from the trade center was terrible, it was depressing, there was a recession going on, CNBC's ratings went down, the stock market mm-hmm. went down. I considered quitting, and I learned to meditate. I actually joined a Buddhist meditation society, and I describe in the book how that helped change my thinking, how what I learned was something terrible had happened, 9-11, I couldn't change that. But I could change my relationship with the the anxiety around that. And it helped calm me down. And it helped made me realize, you know, the world changes. You can't step in the same river twice. It's really true. It's a cliche, but it's true. And you learn how to go along with things and adopt. And that, most important emotionally for me, was describing how I got out of the 9-11 disaster on the other side emotionally. uh, and, And how meditation, in my case, really helped change
1: my life. Bob, this has been too much fun. Uh, we thank you again. Um, for all our listeners, you need to get a copy of Bob Pisani's Got book, Shut Up and sport. Keep Talking. You'll uh, you'll feel entertained and educated throughout his writing. I also want to thank my dad, Bill, for hosting with me today. For our listeners, if you have a great book like Bob's that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at com. That's podcast at com. You can also send your suggestions to us on Twitter. Our handle is at smeedcap. Thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thanks, everyone.
0: Thank you for listening to A Book with Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor.